the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, we're first we're asking everybody to subscribe. Uh, if you're enjoying this podcast and you're listening to all these episodes, or even if this is your first time tuning in, subscribe, rate us, uh, tell your friends. We love to have more listeners. So that's what's going on. Is there anything else in the world going on, Mark? Or is that mm. just what matters? <laughs> mm. Well, that's the most important thing. But I think what else is going on and what we're talking about today is that there's this big New York Times news report that Russia was paying the Taliban to kill American service members in Afghanistan, which created a huge firestorm and you know, caused some people to doubt why would the Taliban need Russia to pay them to do what they do every day, have been doing every day for the last you know, 20 years. Right. But uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a huge controversy. So what do you think of it? It's very interesting. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to our guest about whether this makes sense or not. You know, I mean, I think we can all sort of twist ourselves into pretzels and and make an argument about why this might be happening. Could be rogue elements of the Russian intelligence services. Could be that the Taliban didn't want to attack during the peace negotiations with the United States, and so they needed to be given money to attack. None of that makes a huge amount of sense. What seems pretty clear is that there isn't consensus behind this intelligence report, uh, that in fact it may not be as solid as people think it is. Well, it's become a huge uh, controversy here in Washington, everybody blaming uh, blaming Donald Trump for not taking this seriously enough and for him not being briefed on it, or then it wasn't in his PDB, but then it was in the written part of the PDB, but then he didn't get that oral briefing on that. There's this whole mess about the Trump administration. And, you know, if it was a serious Russian operation uh, to kill American soldiers on which there was solid intelligence, then if the president wasn't briefed on it, it would be criminal. And if he didn't take some action to respond to it, then that would be criminal. But if it's not as big uh, an operation or not as clear, then it's really not the controversy that everybody's made it out to be. And I think the problem for us is that all things can be true. That, in fact, this intelligence that, that is being wantonly leaked by people who have sworn <laughs> under criminal penalty not to leak classified mm -hmm. intelligence might be inaccurate, but that doesn't mean that the, the president's grasp of intelligence is good or that his policies are good. I mean, I think all of the above is true. Part of the, the problem for us now is trying to separate out the Trump derangement in the reporting on this question from the facts. Well, that's I, a broader problem in Washington today that but, spreads but, beyond this story. But, but I can't. I will tell you something. Honestly, I've read all of these stories preparing for the podcast. I've talked to reporters about this. I don't know. I don't know if the story is true. It doesn't make a ton of sense to me. On the other hand, I can fully believe that Donald Trump didn't want to know something like this, you know, because for some reason he does have a soft spot for Russia and he shouldn't. Well, first of all, for Putin, by the way, not for I Russia. Think, I don't think both things can be true. If it's not that big a deal, then you don't waste the president's time with it. And it's not his fault for not wanting to know because he wasn't told about it. If it is a big deal and it's true, 
then there's a responsibility to brief the president. So I think we can't have it both ways to say, we're not sure if the story is true. It may not be as big a deal as everyone makes it out to be. But Donald, either way, Donald Trump is wrong. OK, I want to I just remind everybody of something that I think most of our listeners know, and I know you know, Mark. Mm-hmm. We invaded Iraq. Wise, unwise is not the conversation right now. We invaded Iraq in 2003. Um, we invaded Afghanistan in 2001 after 9-11. Mm-hmm. In Afghanistan, the Iranians and the Pakistanis and others were helping our enemies, including the Taliban and al-Qaeda, and were instrumental in the death of American soldiers. In Iraq, Iran was systematically supporting groups, including Sunni Islamist groups, that were directly responsible for the death of probably hundreds of Americans. So, The notion that somehow this is the first time that countries have tried to target American soldiers and haven't been called to account is garbage. In fact, we don't call countries to account when they do this. Pakistanis have been supporting the Taliban for the last 20 years. No doubt. I agree with you 100 percent. But again, that's not a specific Trump problem. If anything, in a lot of ways, Trump has been tougher in response to some of those things that you specifically said. The Shia groups were killing Americans for years. I worked in the Bush administration. We would never take a target uh, their leadership or impose any consequences on them outside of the, the borders of Iraq. It was not until Donald Trump killed Qasim Soleimani that we actually put, imposed a serious cost on them for it. We both agree that's not enough. We need a comprehensive policy, but that's a, that's a step forward. And when it comes to Russia, it may have been unwilling. It may have been kicking and screaming. It may have been because of the Mueller probe. But Donald Trump has imposed a lot of costs on Russia in the past uh, four years, three and a half years. Yeah, but he also wants to bring Russia back into the G7, make it the G8 again for absolutely absolutely no reason. I I disagree with that. And I wonder if this will stop that. You know, we'll we'll see. No, because Um, he called it a hoax. Well, we don't know whether he is a exquisite consumer of intelligence or not. He has access to more of it than you and I do. So it's entirely possible that he's right. You know, so we, we just don't know what we don't know. I'm willing to call out Donald Trump when he does the wrong thing. I called him out for inviting the Taliban to Camp David. I'm against the Afghanistan withdrawal. I criticize him for withdrawal from Syria. I praise him when he does the right thing. I call him out when he does the wrong thing. But, you know, in this case, it's but, pretty it's, it's in, ambiguous. In this case, it's ambiguous. And, and just everything is it, the problem. This is a big problem for our foreign policy because you and I care about foreign policy. But it's a broader problem with all policies is that everything everything in Washington today is wrapped up in Trump derangement and Trump outrage. And everything that Donald Trump does, if it's even an accusation, people attack him and, and, and go after him. You know, and so his reaction is if people are attacking him to say, no, it's all a hoax. You know, he pushes back. And I don't this is just not a good way to conduct foreign policy. We have to. I, I think the bigger problem here. So, you know, again, I'm trying I'm trying to be more fair than I think The New York Times and the other main newspapers are. That's a uh, low bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's true. But I, I'm trying to be more fair here. Sure. Bottom line, though, is I think that all of this conversation about what Russia is up to in Afghanistan is focusing on, you know, the small ball yep. and not focusing on what the Russians are up to all around the world. And that's really what we need to talk about, because that's not just a Donald Trump problem. That's an America problem. We have, I would say, since the rise of Vladimir Putin and, you know, when, when George W. Bush 
saw into his soul, and I, I understand why he did, why he said it, and I, and I also understand that he regretted mm-hmm. having said that. Yep. But ever since that moment, we have underestimated the Russians, we have underestimated Putin, and we have underestimated the challenge that this represents to us. And that is something we need to spend a lot more time on, a lot less time focusing on what, who said what to Donald Trump when, and a lot more time focusing Great. on what the Russians are up to. And then another thing we need to talk about is, will would this be or will this be any better in a Biden administration? I mean, do you think Joe Biden is going to halt the withdrawal from Afghanistan? Is the Democratic Party going to stand up for uh, American internationalism and engagement in our interests in Afghanistan? Is Joe Biden the guy who said that Mitt Romney, uh, his policies are buried in the Cold War and he doesn't know what he's talking about back in 2012, going to be the guy who's going to get really tough with Russia? You know, I, I don't know that these policies that we disagree with in the Trump administration change for the better, uh, no matter who gets elected. Oh, I don't think there's any question about that. You know, once the object of their derangement is gone for the Democrats, I think we go back to the exact same laissez-faire policies on Russia that we've embraced. This is, you know, you and I have talked about this a, a dozen times. This is the problem for us, is that the isolationist wing of the Republican Party is just as bad as the isolationist wing of the Democratic Party. And in the Democratic Party, that wing is ascendant. The notion that Joe Biden is going to walk in and, you know, reverse our troop withdrawal from Afghanistan? What, are you freaking kidding me? Not a chance. Anyway, we've got a great colleague to help us sort all of this out and understand better what the hell the Russians are up to, not just in Afghanistan, but everywhere. Frederick W. Kagan is the director of the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the author of numerous, numerous works, including Choosing Victory, A Plan for Success in Iraq. He's written about how we actually could win. God forbid we ever try to do that in Afghanistan and in Syria. He's got a Russia tracking project that he does in concert with the Institute for the Study of War, and that has really helped inform a lot of his thinking. So, yay, Fred Kagan. Fred, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be with you again. Excellent. So there's there are all these stories about how Russia is providing bounties to the Taliban to kill American soldiers, and Americans are completely confused about what the hell is going on. Fred, tell us what the hell's going on. Well, uh, Mark, the Russians have been reportedly supporting the Taliban for a while. And it's part of a larger effort that Putin is engaged in to drive the U.S. out of any kind of military activity. It's all part of, a, of an effort that Putin is engaged in to constrain us and shrink us back to what he thinks is our proper role, which is basically doing nothing in the world and understanding that we're the source of all the world's problems. But when we started the war on terror... Russia was sort of on our side, weren't they? Because they, at the time, they were dealing with the, with Islamist insurgents in Chechnya, and they sort of had a confluence of interest with us, and so they were helping us. When did this change? When they switched from? Were they ever helping us in any real sense? And wh- when was the switch, and what precipitated it? Well, so first of all, you know, there's no such thing as Russia. There was Yeltsin, and then there was Putin, and it, now there will always be Putin, apparently. <laughs> So, you know, Putin took over at the end of 2000, and in 2001, he was new in the job, and he was always pretty, you know, suspicious of the U.S. and, and pretty hostile. But 
he was not initially focused on that aspect of things. And yeah, I think that the Russians generally were supportive under Putin early in the war on terror. But there is a change in Putin's view of us that occurs starting in 2004 and then going on as you start to see the so-called color revolutions occur in the former Soviet states. And Putin and his cronies believe that we caused those revolutions to happen and saw those revolutions as evidence that we were working to take control over the former Soviet states and hem Russia in. And so you start to see Putin's rhetoric and behavior change, which is capped with his speech at the Munich Security Conference in 2007, which is just a fire-breathing denunciation of NATO and the United States and a clear delineation of the complete turnaround that he's uh, undergone and that he's been pursuing ever since. So, Fred, tell me if I'm I'm wrong in the way that I think about this right now. Um, You're wrong. <laughs> I said Fred. <laughs> You're wrong. Sorry, Fred. That's that's my job on this podcast is to tell Danny why she's wrong. Oh, right. Don't, don't start. Just, you know, don't start. Just trying to I usurp need. my role, okay? Okay, to, okay I'm, sorry, to, I'm sorry. Two marks. No, no, no. But, but is, is it wrong to think about this that Putin is fundamentally opportunistic, that he sees where the U.S. is in retreat or where the U.S. is perceived to be in retreat, and he sticks his finger in, whether it's in Syria or even in Venezuela or in Afghanistan? It's sort of a reverse Reagan doctrine, if you will, and it does seem to be working. Am I wrong thinking about it that way? Now's your chance. Um, <laughs> yes, you are wrong fundamentally, Danny. It's a widely held belief, but I'm building on the fantastic work that Natalia Bukayova and the Russian team at the Institute for the Study of War have done, showing that Putin actually has strategy. He has an overarching series of objectives, and he has a way in which he wants to approach things. One of the things that he's doing is trying to reestablish the Soviet footprint. And so trying to reestablish Russian bases where there had been Soviet bases and trying to reestablish Russian clients where there had been Soviet clients. And he has also defined for himself specific Russian spheres of interest and dominance and suzerainty and so forth that are immutable in the sense that he would care about them whether or not the U.S. was involved. So he actually is pursuing a plan and a concept, but he is very tactically agile and opportunistic in that sense, that when an opportunity arises that advances his larger aim and objective, he seizes on it like anyone who's any good at this sort of thing. But one of the things that he's remarkably good at is cloaking the overarching theory and strategy and helping us to persuade ourselves that it actually really is all just opportunism when, in fact, there really is a pretty clear, defined set of end states that he's pursuing. So that's very important. I appreciate the insight. And I think that, you know, the Leon Aaron's work as well at AEI has really underscored that Putin has a strategy and that in some ways his foreign policy also represents his domestic strategy, which is to distract the Russian people away from the fact that he hasn't delivered at home to, you know, Russian greatness uh, abroad or Russian quasi-Soviet greatness uh, abroad. But wasn't part of the problem for the Soviet Union in its last days its overextension everywhere? 
Afghanistan, Angola, Nicaragua, El Salvador, you know, Syria, were, they were everywhere. Is that something sustainable? If this is, in fact, a strategy and not a set of tactics, and you make a very persuasive case for that, how does Putin do that? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And unfortunately, he's figured that out. So the approach that Putin is using relies on using relatively inexpensive undertakings to generate really nonlinear effects. Because, again, pointing to Natalia's work, he cares most about perception. He cares least about reality. So he sends a small number of forces to Syria and generates an outsized effect. He has the GRU pay bounties to kill Americans in Afghanistan, trying to generate an outsized effect that doesn't cost him very much. It's the exact opposite of the Soviet experience, right? The Soviets sent 110,000 troops into Afghanistan and you know, look how that ended for them. Putin is going to pay a price for this because there's another phenomenon I'd love to talk with you about related to what happens when his covert operations get blown. But this was a very small investment. And in general terms, almost everything that he's engaged in have been small investments. The exception is really Ukraine, where he got drawn into making a much heavier investment than he wanted to. But he seems to have learned from that experience, and he's now doing things that are not going to get him into that kind of situation or expense. So I think what he's doing actually, unfortunately, is sustainable. So if Putin's strategy is to push the U.S. out of Afghanistan, isn't this sort of backfiring on him? I mean, the, the, the Trump administration was bending over backwards to reach an accord with the Taliban. Paying Taliban fighters during those negotiations to kill Americans would disrupt the fig leaf of a peace accord that the administration was trying to negotiate so they could get out. It just sort of doesn't make sense, unless you can give me another rationale for it. We have seen other cases where... Putin's way of running things leads to local guys doing things that are actually don't make sense at the particular moment from a larger geostrategic perspective. Putin is generally not a micromanager. And so it's perfectly possible that the GRU had a sort of a general license to hunt out there for a long time and was just carrying on because that's what they were doing and nobody thought to rein them in. So we do need to be careful and this is, of course, one of the reasons why people decide that he's just an opportunist and doesn't have a strategy. You know, sometimes the enemy makes mistakes, too. And it's possible that this was a mission that needed to be called off or suspended and that they just didn't. And that's I don't know the details. But I want to make a larger and somewhat more distressing point, which is that the administration has pretty much already made it clear that they actually have no intention of calling off the talks or the withdrawal, regardless of whether people kill American soldiers. That that just, I mean, that happened once. The president suspended the Camp David meeting back in 2019. Let, let's let's um, remind everybody, the Camp David meeting with the Taliban, the guys who hosted Osama bin Laden, that he had scheduled for September 11th of 2019. With Taliban leaders who had been released by President Obama from Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> it's always important to underscore just, just a, how outrageous yeah. this whole thing was. <laughs> Right. Not to put too fine a point on it. Right. Yeah. And then the Taliban killed Americans and then he suspended that. But subsequent Taliban violence and attack has not generated that effect. And even the U.S. administration response to this revelation seems to indicate that there's no 
interest in rethinking the agreement or pulling out based on this. So I think Putin may well have calculated, or the GRU guys may well have calculated, they can go ahead and still do this and it won't matter. Is it possible that what Putin is doing is anticipating a U.S. withdrawal and a vacuum in Afghanistan that he can somehow fill by improving his relations with the Taliban? You know, Putin doesn't hold grudges like that. He mainly holds grudges against us. And he will work pragmatically with people that he thinks he needs to work with, including the Taliban. And I think you're right. He is thinking about how to position himself in Central Asia in general and Afghanistan in particular when we have pulled out. He does have interest there. And yeah, I mean, buttering up to the Taliban at this time. Our policy has made that look like an attractive thing to do, unfortunately. Well, and there's nothing, of course, stopping him from using this tactically to advance, even if it is part of a larger strategy. Let me ask you a little bit about some of these details. One of the most common questions that's been asked in coverage of this is, why do the Russians need to pay the Taliban to do something the Taliban seem to be so enthusiastic about doing anyway? Do you have a theory? It's like having someone pay me to argue with Danny. (laughs) That's what AEI does. (laughs) But we digress. No, but a serious question. I don't honestly know how to read that. You could imagine that he wanted to make sure that they would continue to focus on trying to kill us or that elements in the organization would continue to focus on trying to kill Americans when the group leadership had made it clear that they were going to try not to kill Americans because they wanted the deal to go through. And in that sense, I suppose you could see it as working against the deal, although I don't think that he was trying to do that. I think it may be part, and I'm I'm really speculating here, I I, I don't know, but I am concerned that as we are pulling out of places and making it clear that we want to pull out, there is a tendency among some of our adversaries to want to be able to say that they are the ones who drove us out and to have been shooting at us on the way out in some way so that they can claim credit for the kill. And it's conceivable that he wanted to be able to do that, but he also wanted to make sure that it looked like we were withdrawing under fire and not just withdrawing on our own terms. I'm totally speculating, but that wouldn't be inconsistent with his thinking and with other behavior that we've seen by other actors. Is it possible that, you know, part of the problem in Washington nowadays is that the instinct, certainly of the news media, is is to basically say, well, Donald Trump doesn't think it's true, and therefore not only is it true, but it's, if I may use the famous expression, a slam dunk of intelligence. Isn't it just possible that actually this intel isn't correct? Because it, it is a little hard to explain. And I'll say something else. It's not low cost. You know, there was just a little squib in the paper that said, uh, and I'll just quote it, early 2020, SEAL Team 6 raids a Taliban outpost and recovers $500,000 in cash, an event which affirmed the intelligence community's suspicions about Russia paying bounties. I'm sorry, those aren't little bounties. That's a (laughs) shit ton of money. Well, it isn't actually. I mean, it's not a large amount of money for a state. And the Russian economy is small, but it's not that small. And I mean, they haven't killed that many Americans. I mean, it's not like they're paying out hundreds of bounties. Taliban have not been killing a lot of Americans. A lot of Americans have been dying. So that's still kind of peanuts to me, honestly. But what about the Um, quality of the the information? I mean, do we actually think it's true? Look, there's nothing inconsistent about it. We've had consistent indication for years that the Russians are supporting the Taliban. 
we've been hearing that for a long time, and I haven't heard anybody persuasively say, no, 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 that's, that's not true. So it's not inconsistent with what the general consensus seems to have been. Look, we always get into this problem, as, as you and Mark know so well, Danny, anytime you start talking about classified information, we have the problem that somebody leaks something, and then we start to have a conversation. The intelligence community says we can't talk about it. And until all the documents are made available, you can't know. Listening to the way, you know, unidentified officials in the intelligence community are speaking and recognizing that this is congruent or consistent with what is thought to be a Russian pattern in Afghanistan, I don't have any reason to think that this is made up or unreliable. I think different agencies are going to put different confidence assessments on intelligence. Look, as you know, but your listeners may not be tracking on, one of the reasons why we have all the different intelligence organizations offer assessments on the same piece of information or idea is that they bring different capabilities to the table. So the CIA has the human intelligence, you know, the spy networks. The National Security Agency has the technical intelligence and listen, you know, cell phones and stuff. There are other organizations that have other specialties. And they will each make an assessment of the credibility of any particular piece of information based largely on what their kind of intelligence shows. So if you have intelligence that, you know, if we have signals intelligence and we have some kind of communications intercept, the NSA is going to say, well, we have high confidence in this because we have a high confidence signals intelligence intercept. If the CIA's human networks didn't pick it up, the CIA is going to say, we, we don't have high confidence because we don't have our own sources that do that. Now, there are exceptions, as Mark knows well, you do too, Danny, that the CIA is supposed to be making its assessments based on all sources and not just its own human intelligence. But the truth is that it does tend to privilege its sources. So I think we need to be really careful if we say, well, well some agencies had high confidence, but some agencies had lower confidence. That, that doesn't actually tell me very much about the actual credibility. It just tells me that it was picked up on some sources and systems and not as much on others. But you, you make an important point, and Danny does too, which is that there's so much nuance in this that we don't know because it's classified, right? So it could be, as you suggested, it could be local GRU operatives who are just sort of given a green light and they did it without orders from Putin, or it could be orders from Putin. It could be a large-scale program, or it could be a very limited-scale program that was not directed from the Kremlin. There's so many layers of this that would go into assessing both the credibility of the intelligence and also how serious a threat this was in the context of what you point out is the larger Russian policy of supporting the Taliban and funding the Taliban, that it's just not clear that this was the big front page news story that it was made out to be. No, right. And we're not going to know what the details were until the stuff gets declassified. And even then, I'm sure we'll be arguing about it. But look, there's one thing that's really clear from this. And some people really need help getting this through their minds. Putin identifies the United States as Russia's enemy. He identifies his overarching objective as being to destroy the global international order that the United States created and replace it with a multipolar world order in which he and the Chinese and the Iranians and the Venezuelans and the North Koreans and everybody else all sit around the table with the United States as equals and our voice weighs no more than any of theirs and in which the United States does not conduct military operations outside of its borders 
does not express opinions about things that go on in other countries, whatever people do to their populations, and so on and so on. If you just read what Putin says, if you read his statements, if you read the official policies and doctrines of the Russian Federation, and if you look at what he's doing, that's what Putin is doing. And that's who Putin is. And this is just another data point with whatever confidence you want to ascribe to it, and that reaffirms something that is very well known and very well documented. And it is important that we focus on that because there are still people who are saying, but we can work with the Russians here. Maybe we can work with the Russians over there. Maybe we have, we have, I mean, we understand that, but we can have some common interests with them. No, we don't have common interests with a country that identifies us as an enemy to be defeated. John Kerry, Fred is speaking to you. <laughs> One thing that is absolutely clear from what you're describing is that while there's been an evolution over the last, let's say, 17 years or so, in reality, Russia has increasingly been playing this role, not simply during the Trump administration, but during the Obama administration and even during the Bush administration. That this is a this is a long-term project for Vladimir Putin, right? It is. And the U.S. response has also been pretty consistent throughout that period, starting with the Bush administration's extremely limited, I'm being generous here, response to the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008. Right. I mean, we've basically gone from Georgia to Crimea, you know, the rest of Ukraine, Syria, now in Afghanistan. I mean, we've... Libya. Yeah. Right. Right. We've been pretty weak-kneed about all of this. Now, there's another element here that's been written about. There was a, an interesting article in Foreign Policy that, that asked, I love the title of it, too. It's called, What's This Unit of Russian Spies That Keeps Getting Outed? Um, and it talks about this unit 29155. It's always sounds so much better when it has a, a number attached to it. It could be completely made up. But these are the guys who were responsible, apparently, for the botched effort to assassinate Sergei Skripal, the Russian defector in the UK. They sound like a bumbling mass of idiots. A little um, bit more Austin Powers than James Bond. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. But they're also they're also the ones who are operating in uh, in Afghanistan. Is this something we should be more worried about? We spend a lot of time focusing on Putin himself, but we don't focus a lot on what, you know, Russian Russian elements are doing in these various countries. No, I mean, we do kind of follow it. We follow the Russian proxies. We follow the various elements that the Russians create to create pretend that they have some kind of plausible deniability, you know, Faulkner and stuff. And we know what the FSB is doing, and we know what the GRU is doing in various different ways. I think the mistake that we make is if we imagine that these organizations are doing things that are fundamentally at odds with what Putin wants to have happen, that they're fundamentally freelancing. That's not the way that this is working. They are pursuing activities that are coherent and consistent with Putin's overarching end state and desires, they will take act, you know, actions based on their situation and their judgment, and sometimes they will blow things. It's always hard to tell how good an adversary intelligence organization is, because you tend only to read about it when they screw up. Because if a covert organization is doing its job properly, you don't even know that it was there. If you're hearing about it, then something went wrong. So I wouldn't read too much into the fact that we've, we've had blown missions and things about their overall capacity. Although, as I said earlier, and it is important, we shouldn't attribute omnipotence and omniscience to them either. They are going to blow things. They do blow things. 
And that actually creates opportunities for us. Because if you ask a question, has Putin gained from all of the activities that he has been pursuing over the last 20 years? The answer is yes and no. He gained part of Ukraine, but not what he was going for, which was much more of it, and which was, in fact, regaining control over political decision-making in Kyiv, which he really hasn't done. But he's paid a fearful price for it. And he paid a fearful price because he tried to sneak it in and he tried to do it as if it weren't a Russian operation and it was blown. And similarly with his intervention in the 2016 election, he tried to conduct a covert operation, which may or may not have affected the outcome of the election. I don't actually think that it did, but it was blown. And when it's blown, he actually pays a very big price as people get angry when they see that he was playing a game and then he got caught. I call, I call it the blowback phenomenon. It's what happens when you try to do these kinds of covert operations and then they get blown. And then you get sanctioned, you get people, you know, all kinds of people angry and stuff. And if you think about it, what was the overarching effect of his interference in the US election? He has cemented a notion that Russia is an adversary, that Russia, it has to be mistrusted, particularly within the Democratic Party, which until that happened in 2016, had been much more inclined to be, let's work with the Russians, the Russian reset, various other things like that. Hey, Mitt All Romney, the, the, the 1980s called, they want their foreign policy back. Right, yeah. right. And so it is an opportunity for us every time one of these things gets blown, and we need to start to get more strategic about how we're going to capitalize on these opportunities as they come up. So last question for you from me as well. We've talked about what we're doing wrong. We're you know, skedaddling from Afghanistan. We're letting the Russians get a, a foothold in all of the places where Putin feels that the Soviet Union was unjustly pushed out. You know, Russia has got a, a reasonably, certainly successful, if you look at where their influence has grown to, uh, uh, foreign policy. What should our foreign policy be? We have imposed sanctions on the Russians that are hurting very badly. The sanctions hurt particularly because the Europeans also have imposed tough sanctions on the Russians. The European sanctions, which in many respects matter more than ours, are under constant threat. Putin is working tirelessly to find ways to neutralize those sanctions, to pick off EU countries, to get them not renewed. We need to fight that. We need to continue to fight that, and we need to make it a priority to strengthen our relationships with our European partners as best we can and fight against these various Russian attempts to pick the EU and NATO and the U.S. apart and find ways to neutralize those sanctions. This has got to be a priority, and I think that we run risks if we assume that the Europeans have no alternative but to do what we want them to do because that is not always going to be the case. So one thing is we really have to focus on making sure that those sanctions remain in place as long as the crimes that triggered them, which was the invasion and annexation of Crimea in the first instance, continue to be in effect. And then beyond that, we need to recognize that having the Russians involve themselves in Syria was a disaster. Having them continue to be in Syria is a disaster. It means, among other things, the U.S. 
Navy and Air Force have to worry about operating in, in contested airspace in the Eastern Mediterranean for the first time since the Cold War. And it's given him the ability now to expand into Libya. And I think if you watch, we'll probably see him expanding into Egypt. We have to push back on this. And we have to push back, again, with sanctions and by engaging ourselves in some of these conflicts at least enough to stop presenting Putin with the opportunity to involve himself at very low cost. That's one of the problems with our general withdrawal is we have we keep creating opportunities for him to involve himself at very low cost, and we don't really do anything to raise the cost to him. And that's what needs to change. We need to start doing various actions that can raise the cost and force him to decide and choose and prioritize, which will mean that he will have to choose not to do some things. Fred, thank you so much for taking the time. We're always so happy to have an AEI colleague on. Thanks a ton. <laughs> Thanks, Fred. Thanks, Mark and Danny. Okay, Danny, so what should we be doing about this problem? I like the way you leave the easy questions for me. <laughs> Look, I think Fred I think Fred laid it out. And, you know, I had a piece yesterday in the dispatch in which I talked about my favorite thing, which is the Reagan doctrine. You know, I always say Barack Obama did a, a huge disservice by forcing us to think of foreign policy as a binary choice. Either do everything, you know, half a million troops or do nothing. That was his approach to Syria. That was his approach to Libya after we toppled Gaddafi. And that was his approach to a lot of a lot of foreign policy problems. And the reality is that we have so many allies in the world who believe in the same things we do, who have the same values that, that we have, and they need our help. Uh, they don't need troops. But like the Ukrainians, you know, some some do, some do. In Syria, you know, look, in Syria, we needed to do the training. We needed to be partly on the ground. In Iraq, we've really helped stave off increasing Iranian influence, the return of ISIS. All of these things matter a great deal. But we we can't, I, I agree, we can't be everywhere. And when we can't be certain places because the American people don't want to, because we can't articulate an interest, we should be helping people on the ground who want to get rid of the Russians, want to get rid of the Iranians, want to get rid of the Venezuelans or the Cubans or whoever the bad guys are out there. We should be doing what Reagan did, which is helping people who are ideologically aligned with us against our common enemies. Or at least people who wait, don't wake up in the morning thinking America is what's wrong with the world. Well, we need to get rid of half of Washington at this point. Well, that's true. <laughs> but look, I, I agree with you 100% that the Reagan doctrine is the is the model going forward. And it was and it came at a similar historic moment because Ronald Reagan came into office, you know, less than a decade after our withdrawal from Vietnam, uh, when there was no appetite in America for ma major troop deployments anywhere in the world, right? And we now are in, this, in a very similar political moment where there's just not an after Iraq and Afghanistan and 18 years in Afghanistan and, and all the all the casualties and all the costs and everything like that. There's no appetite for major troop deployments. And, you know, the, the reality is this is what frustrates me about the Trump administration is that I just don't understand the, the drive of the Trump administration to get to zero. Well, I think for, I, I believe that for the president, it's a talking point. In other words, it gives him the ability to go out in Tulsa or Mount Rushmore or wherever it is. He's having a rally, I guess, next week in New Hampshire and say, Barack Obama said he was going to end wars, but he started them. I said I was going to end wars, and I did. And of course, never remembering the dictate. You don't end wars. You win or you lose.
No, that's true. And also the enemy gets a vote in all of these things. Donald Trump doesn't get to decide where the war is won. The Taliban has a say. You know, ISIS has a say. Iran has a say when it comes to the militias in Iraq and all the rest of it. I mean, you can say that you ended the war with a small deployment of troops that is there uh, advising and helping local forces fight your enemies. I mean, the the reality is is that these these dangers don't go away just because we want them to do to. And it, at very small cost, financial and risk-wise, we have the power to enable forces around the world who are willing to take on our enemies and keep our enemies at bay in Syria, in Afghanistan, and other places. And it just, it seems to me such a no-brainer to want to want to help them. But look how uh, long it took us to actually arm the people of Ukraine who wanted to fight off the Russians. I mean, you know, and again- Which credit, Donald Trump did. Right. And credit to, credit to they, the, the Trump administration. The, the, Biden gave them MREs. Trump gave them RPGs. Right. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you've been working on that little that little uh, bumper sticker there. Uh, that's why I was a White House feature. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, look, I mean, look, this is this is my biggest fear, you know, is that, yeah, Trump's not been great. Yeah, if the story is true about the Taliban and the Russians paying to kill American troops, that is an outrage, notwithstanding all of the question of leaking. But I don't think the other side is animated by anything other than doing the opposite of Donald Trump or doing the opposite of what Donald Trump is being perceived to do. I don't think anyone is interested in standing up to the Russians in a way that will actually push Putin back. Well, that's a, a good optimistic note to end on, Danny. Yes, it is. <laughs> hey, folks, if you have ideas, if you have suggestions, if you have complaints, as usual, about Mark and get in line, let me tell you. But <laughs> then, then let us let us know. Don't forget to subscribe. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell everybody. And have a great week. Take care. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@aei.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.